0: Yesterday we left off in a description of some of what is coming for the church here at the end time, just as God begins to shake the heavens and the earth, uh, in a little while he says, and then at the end of Haggai, immediately. So the temple is to be built, and then trouble will come, and these end time events will begin to happen in great measure. Today, let's examine some more about the latter temple, that which is just ahead of us. We'll do it in the light, again, of some of the things from the past, because that pattern is always there. (coughs) God repeats things, and one of the reasons God repeats things is because people repeat things, and uh, corrections have to be made. Uh, renewals have to occur, uh, repentance has to happen, things have to change. That has been the case all the way through the history of mankind, because we do not tend to wish to obey God, and we stray from Him, and then He has to change things. And our most recent uh, episode, of course, has been The demise of worldwide and splintered into four or five hundred different groups, maybe three thousand by now, I don't know if you count one, two, three, four people here and there, but it has scattered terribly, and God has called us to repentance and reform and to change and to be different and to do better than what we were doing and to be filled with zeal and energy for his purposes and his plan. And I think that what you and I understand at this point should be something that would create an excitement and a zeal and an energy to pray, to get closer to God, to make whatever changes we all need to make in our lives ...that he might be pleased with us and want us to be a part of his work as it goes forth from now. So you and I have an early opportunity, a head start if you will, uh, because we did respond to him to come out and to prepare and to make ready a place for others to come. So this has been a wonderful opportunity. It's taken longer than any of us, I think, anticipated at the beginning... I thought when some of this information started coming, I thought, well, this must be right now. Because it's given now, it must be now. But no, uh, that wasn't the case. And even as Jeremiah said, God gave me a message, and I've been at it now for 23 years, he said, now it's going to happen. So uh, anytime you look in here, things are not immediate. I don't know what Noah thought when God said, I want you to build a boat, and uh, Noah says, oh, okay, maybe that'll take a couple years, and turned into a hundred. <laughs> of course, he lived longer than we do. So, uh, there is preparation time always. There is time to get things lined up, things to happen, and even in Solomon's day, David had been preparing for years and years ahead to have things ready to go when he died and Solomon took over, and then things could begin. But until David died, God had said, No, you're not going to do this, so you got a waiting period. And then when David did die, and Solomon took over, and finally got everything settled down, uh, then he started building the temple of God. So, it always takes time. But then God is not slack concerning his times, as Peter tells us. And he will do it on time. It's just that we haven't always understood the time. And we see from the apostles, of course, and that's been mentioned many, many times, how Christ allowed them to think that he was returning in their lifetime to give them energy and zeal to push and to get done what he wanted done. And then, of course, they realized, as they were being martyred, this isn't coming in my lifetime. I'm dying here. And, of course, the Apostle John lived out a full life and was probably in his 90s at the end of the early church era, which lasted about 70 years. And he saw the whole thing, and he realized by the time he died that there had been a great falling away, and that the church barely existed anymore, and that's where he died, realizing that, no, this isn't right now. This is off in the future. And, of course, he was given the book of Revelation, which I think underscores that point, (laughs) that he wrote about things that would come much later on, and it's even mentioned as such. So, here we are, And we see these things happening now. And the timeline is coming to a very short period when all these things are coming to pass. Let's go back to Ezekiel 38. I'll pick it up in this chapter because just ahead of this is the description in chapter 40 of a temple. And let's get a little bit of an idea of the setting for this. Uh, before we get to chapter 40. I'll pick it up in chapter 8. He's been talking here about some of the things God's going to do for His people here at the end. And in verse 8 he says, After many days you shall be visited. Now he's speaking here, this chapter, to Gog and Magog, if you look back at verse 2. Gog and Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, uh, appear to be Russia and perhaps the communist hordes uh, of the East here in the end, time uh, who he's speaking of. And he goes on down then and speaking to them and says, After many days you shall be visited in the latter years. So he's speaking of a time uh, right at the end when these people are going to have God come and visit on them. You shall come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste. So there's going to be turmoil in this country, and we see that already happening, and it will get worse. And then God is going to bring his remnant and give them peace, uh, here in the promised land. And then these people are going to look at that and see that it's got people dwelling there now. And they dwell safely, all of them, it says in verse 8. Now this is a time, as we'll see here shortly, of great tumult, and yet here are people dwelling safely, which God says he will do. In this place will I bring peace, and I'll be a wall of fire around you and protect you and a covert from the heat and the rain. Anyway, he says of them in verse 9, You shall ascend and come like a storm. You shall be like a cloud to cover the land. You and all your bands and many people with you. Thus says the eternal God, it shall also come to pass, that at the same time shall things come into your mind, and you shall think an evil thought. Gog and Magog. And you shall say, "I will go up to the land of unwalled villages." He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem there in Zechariah 2, will be built as towns without walls. Unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest that dwell in safely, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. God's protection to take a spoil and to take a prey, to turn your hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited. Didn't we read yesterday about uh, the cities of Judah that will be again inhabited there in Isaiah 44? And upon the people that are gathered out of the nations, he says he's going to gather his remnant from all over the earth, which have gotten cattle, he says there will be much men and cattle there again in Zechariah 2, that dwell in the midst of the land. And what he wants to do then into verse 13 is to take a prey to carry away silver and gold. Didn't we read in Isaiah 44 and 45 that God's going to open it and give the riches and the hidden things that he has preserved and kept to the church for his people Jacob by a carnal human man who is used to find the place where it is. Well, China, Russia, the countries of the East are buying gold right now as fast as they can get it. And when they see a great treasure trove that God brings forth, and it will be made public and worldwide, as I said yesterday, because he says there it will be used to show people from the East all the way to the West that he is God. And they're going to see that, and they will want it. So they'll have this evil thought, we're going to go get it. Okay? We're talking about the next two, three, four years here. That's what we're talking about. Take a great spoil. Therefore, son of man, here's what to say to them. You shall come from the place out of the north parts, you and many people with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company, a mighty army. Probably modern war machines, not horses, but uh, we have to translate to the modern. Uh, you do that in the book of Revelation where it talks about the bees and the hornets and the buzzing sounds, tanks, planes, bombs, whatever. Uh, I think is what it's talking of but they couldn't John couldn't picture it that way he saw these things probably as they are today and he didn't know how to describe them because he had no experience with any such thing so to him they were like buzzing insects and so on with fire in their tails how many insects do you know that have fire in their tails well a hornet kind of does but uh, these staying men, uh, so not to go into that in detail, for sake of time here, I want to cover things. Anyway, they're going to come after the gold and the silver and to take a great spoil is what they want. Verse 16, And you shall come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the latter days. So we're getting the setting here of the time, right here at the end, latter days. And I will bring view against my land that the heathen may know me when I shall be sanctified in you, O God, before their eyes. Now he's going to describe something that has never happened to date. Thus says the eternal God, Are you he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants the prophets of Israel which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring you against them? He says, this is the culmination of what the prophets were saying. And this is happening in the latter days. So the prophets weren't just speaking of historical issues back in their day. Their message really was for the latter days, and God mentions that right here. This is the culmination of all that those prophets said. And it shall come to pass at the same time in the latter days... When God shall come against the land of Israel, says the Eternal, that my fury shall come up in my face. For in my jealousy and the fire of my wrath have I spoken, surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel. Didn't we read that in the last verses of Haggai? So that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the heaven and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep upon the earth and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence and the mountains shall be thrown down and the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. And I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains, says the eternal God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother." So here comes this massive multitude and they're all going to turn on each other with their own swords. Now isn't that kind of what happened back when... uh Where's his name? Um, no, not Elijah, but where they... Uh, they went out in the night and blew the... Or, or had the lamps. Gideon. I couldn't say it. Uh <laughs> I'm getting old. This has got to happen soon, hasn't it? And the Assyrians all got up in the night. They saw those lanterns and they started hacking on each other. And uh, it was 147,000 or something like that fell that night. Uh, killed each other. Same thing here is going to happen. Now, think back in history. Have the mountains shaken? Have, has everything been done like he's talking about here? Now, this has never happened. So this is here in the latter days. And I will plead against him with pestilence and blood. And I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him and overflowing uh, pain and great rain, I guess, and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Sounds like Sodom and Gomorrah. Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Eternal, which Ezekiel says dozens of times. So when he says, I will be a wall of fire around you and protect you, you come back here and you see what he does to protect his remnant. He destroys the whole army. I'm against you, O God, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And I will turn you back and leave but the sixth part of you. So five-sixths of them will basically kill each other and be destroyed by the rain and the hail and all the things that God is going to do. And will cause you to come up from the north parts and will bring you upon the mountains of Israel. That's these mountains right here. I'll smite you. And you shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your bands and the people that are with you. And I'll give you to the ravenous birds of every sort. And you shall fall upon the open field, for I have spoken it. And I will send a fire on Magog, and then they dwell carelessly in its coasts. They'll know that I'm the Eternal. I'll make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. We're going to witness this, see it happen, and we'll stand in awe of God. How could you not? The heathen shall know that I am the Eternal, the Holy One in Israel. It is come, and it is done. This is a judgment that is past. It is going to happen. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And then you'll have to go forth from the cities of Israel and set on fire and burn, destroy the uh, weapons of war, and burn them with fire seven years. This is quite a multitude that's coming, and only so many can be doing this. Uh, there will there'll be a place, verse 11, of graves in Israel, the valley of the passengers on the east of the sea, and they shall stop the noses of the passengers. People who are traveling uh, will have to hold their nose. It would be so bad. And there shall they bury Gog in all his multitudes. We're going to be playing spades. We played a game of spades last night, and uh, I didn't have to hold my nose. But they'll have the spades, the shovels, maybe the caterpillars, who knows, out burying these people. And there's a place even that says it'll be seven months there and 14. And people of continual employment passing through the land trying to get them all buried. And if they see a man's bone, they put a sign by it to show the people that are burying, or full-time employment burying, that there's one there that needs buried. But when God does something, God does something. He wants us to do whatever our hand finds with all our might, and when he does something, he does it with his might. And Gog and Magog are going to feel it. And then he says in verse 25, Will I bring again the captivity of Jacob and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel? And it is going to wind up being the whole house of Israel. At first the church, the remnant, and then when this is all over, of course, the whole house of Israel that's left, a little less than 10%, will also be gathered. So it happens, as all the prophecies, to the church first, then to the nation. And it will wind up with the whole of Israel that is left. And then, know oh, I am God. Verse 29, neither will I hide my face anymore from them. How many scriptures have we seen where God says he's turned his face from us now? And we're waiting for him to turn it back and to begin to show signs and wonders. And all these things come to pass. They're not far off now. For I poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, says the eternal. And Joel 2 says that's exactly what he's going to do. So Ezekiel's right in line with all these other prophecies. <coughs> now, we've reviewed some scriptures showing there will be a latter temple, Haggai and Zechariah, and uh, and many other scriptures. Uh, Isaiah 44 and 45 we reviewed yesterday about how this carnal... Cyrus, will say these must be builded, and here's the gold and the silver, go do it. It's going to happen. The whole world will see it, and so will these guys, and they'll try to come get it. They'll fail. Now, that will not be a final failure, because the end of chapter 11 of Daniel, let me turn back there, I referred to it the other day, and I didn't turn there, I don't think. Here is this man. The mighty king will stand up and have great dominion and do according to his will in Daniel eleven three. Uh, and in the end of years, verse 6, they shall join themselves together. The king's daughter of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. Iron and miry clay, but an agreement. Uh, but out of Verse 7, a branch of her root shall one stand up in his estate, another leader which shall come with an army and shall enter, shall enter into the fortress of the king of the north and shall deal against them and shall prevail. So the king, here's somebody from the south who comes up and prevails against the king of the north and carry captives and so on, vessels of silver and gold. And he shall continue more years than the king of the north. So the king of the south shall come into his kingdom and shall return to his own land. I'm not as far down as I really want to be. There's more here than I want to take time to cover. I thought it was further over. Uh, Let's go over here to the end of the chapter. Here's, Here's a leader who will... Honor the God of forces, verse 38, which is war. A God whom his fathers know not, shall he honor with gold and silver, and so on. And he'll divide the land for gain, in verse 39. And at the time of the end, shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north, so they go back and forth here. King of the south, king of the north, one wins, a battle, then they go back, and the other one wins, and so we're coming to the culmination of this. And in any way, uh, the king of the north will come, and he is the one, in verse 41 then, shall enter also into the glorious land, that's the promised land, that's where God's remnant people will be, the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape, Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. Here's another scripture that indicates that the Mormons have a great percentage of Edom, Moab, and Ammon in them because they're in the glorious land where this guy comes and they are destroyed it says in other chapters in Isaiah and so on but in this particular invasion they're spared anyway, he'll stretch forth his hands also upon the countries and the land of Mithraim shall not escape the original land of Mithraim was here but he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver, and all over the precious things of uh, Mishraim and Libya and Ethiopia shall be at his steps. So here's a man coming into the glorious land, that which, was, which comprised all the nations of the earth at one time, until they migrated out of here. He's going to take over the gold and the silver. When's he going to do it? back when they set up the abomination in the temple. And the church has to flee to Zion, and they have everything there. Ross LeBaron would be mighty upset if I showed him this scripture uh, that all this stuff that he's afraid the government or somebody's going to take are. They're going to. And he don't have power over it all. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. And he shall plant the tabernacle of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. That's Jerusalem. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. God, the book of Revelation says will take him by the nap of the neck and throw him in the lake of fire. But in the meantime, he takes over. Between the seas, where's that? Well, the original Jerusalem had a sea on the east, a sea on the west. And that's where it's going to be, right up here in North of Cedar City. You don't have that in the Middle East. On either side, or all four sides of Jerusalem, you don't have any place that's a lake bed to be refilled. These will be refilled. So, God will protect his people until it's time to flee to Zion. Then the beast will take over. But you know what? When Christ returns, the holy city will have gold everywhere. So what happened with Solomon's mind won't really mean a thing. And we read, uh, recently anyway, in the last two or three days... The God will, the Christ will redistribute everything. Like when Joshua went into the land and divided up the land. Now if you get at Ezekiel 40 to 48, you find another division of the land. The promised land is going to be divided up here in the latter days among the people of the church who will have been spiritually placed in different tribes of Israel. Part of the 144,000. So let's go to Ezekiel 40 then. This was during the captivity, the 70 years, and God gave Ezekiel a vision, verse 2, and the visions of God brought me into the land of Israel, so here's the setting, and set me on a very high mountain, by which was as the frame of a city on the south, so north of uh, Jerusalem, looking toward the city, and he brought me there a man whose appearance uh, was the appearance of brass, a line of flax in his hand, and a measuring reed? Don't we read there in Ezekiel? I mean in Zechariah, uh, I think it's two, yeah, two. That here's talk to this young man. Give him a a line to go and measure Jerusalem. Same thing here. The man said to me, Son of man, behold with your eyes and hear with your ears, and set your heart upon all that I shall show you. There's a scripture toward the end of Isaiah which talks about, let Jerusalem come to your mind. And here he's telling Ezekiel the same thing in vision. Put your heart on it of what God is about to do with his promised land, with his promised people with his called out ones, with his latter day saints, not the Mormons, thank you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. Well, what house of Israel are we talking about? Spiritual Israel, the church, because they are the ones to build the temple. God directs that specifically in Haggai and Zechariah. Joshua's Rubabel, the two anointed ones of Revelation 11, are to build the temple along with the remnant that he draws together, the 10%. So he makes it very clear that he's talking about spiritual Israel here because other scriptures show that they are the ones, by name, who will do this. Now let me say also that no one in history has ever tried to build this particular temple that's described here. The dimensions are different than Solomon's temple. The dimensions are different than Ezra's temple. I won't go into all that for sake of time, but uh, you can compare it if you wish and see that these this isn't the same temple. This is a different one. And it comes at the latter days. We've already established the context of Ezekiel here. So, it appears, from everything I can see, that this is the temple, the latter temple that shall be built. And then he goes on to describe it. I've gotten on the Internet and and seen artists' mock-ups of what is described here. And each one of them will read this and try to build it the way he thinks it says it is. And they're all different. (laughs) (coughs) There's a pattern here. There's dimensions here. But it doesn't show exactly how it's to be done. And I suspect that God will reveal to Zerubbabel, who is the one who is ultimately to build the temple, your hands started that they will finish it. What it's to look like. Uh, had he described it in that way, so that there was no question, somebody would have tried to have done it probably by now. So he's left it somewhat ambiguous. But he's given us enough here to see that it's different than anything that has been done before, and it is in the latter days. Before I go any further here, I'm going to flip back to chapter 48 at the end of this. Now here, uh, he's dividing up the land. We came out here, we divided up this land, and the whole promised land is going to be divided up to various ones, uh, just like in the days of Joshua. But verse 35, the last verse, it was round about 18,000 measures, and the name of the city from that day shall be, the Lord is there. Now in the Hebrew, that's Jehovah Shammah, Shammah, Uh but it's defined almost the same way, or the words are, God with us. The Lord is there, or God with us. So Emmanuel could be applied here very easily. And Christ said he is coming in the last days to dwell with us at Jerusalem, right there in Zechariah 2. I read it to you, I think, yesterday. It might have been the day before. So this is something where Christ is going to be and He is going to be ever with His people, He will never forsake them nor leave them from the time that He sets us up and causes this temple to be built. He'll be with us. And He'll be with us on the way to Zion. And He'll be with us in Zion. And He'll protect us throughout the entire tribulation and then resurrect us or change us into spirit at the last trump. So, when He says ever there, He's not talking about the kingdom of God here, because it's described in Revelation 21 as being the holy city with 144,000, and it comes down with the gold and everything in it, and the temple is the Father and the Son. So it it says there's no need of temple there. Doesn't it say that? Because they're it. So if in the kingdom of God in the millennium, they're the temple... Then this one has to come beforehand. And it isn't far off. And he says there will be old men who remembered worldwide who will see the glory of the latter temple. And we got some old men that saw that. Some of you younger ones here didn't see that. Herbert Armstrong died before some of you who were baptized members even were born. So it's the old guys that he says in Haggai, will see and compare what was and what is. And there will be no comparison. Okay? So let's go back to uh, Ezekiel 41. Uh, and, well, even to skip on, I think, to chapter 43, it's it just talking here basically about the building and the measurements and how and so on, various chambers and the porch and this and that, which is important but it isn't needful for this day. Uh, we need the message for us for now. All these dimensions will mean something when it's time to start putting it together. But right now, we can set them aside for sake of time for some things that are more important. Chapter 43, He brought me to the gate, even the gate that looked to the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east, And his voice was like a noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. That sounds just like Revelation 1. That can be no one but Jesus Christ or Emmanuel. No one else. So he told Solomon that he would come and dwell in that temple. That temple's been destroyed. And so is Solomon. We'll get to that here in a minute. But this one, God, is going to come, and his glory will be in it, the latter temple. He says he'll come and dwell with us, and here he is. And it was according to the appearance of the vision which I saw, even according to the vision that I, that I saw, when I came to destroy the city, or to talk about the destruction of the city, it's better uh, rendered in the Hebrew, because Ezekiel did uh, say that the city would be destroyed. and the visions that came when I was by the reef, uh, river Kibar. So the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate, whose prospect or opening is toward the east. And he, the Spirit took me up, and the glory of the Eternal filled the house. I want to be here when this happens, or be there, not far from here, when God puts his glory in it, and the place sh- lights up and shines. So the Spirit took me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of God was there. Verse 7, He said to me, Son of man, the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever, and my holy name shall a house of Israel no more defile, neither they nor their kings by their whoredom, and so on. So He's referring not only to this one, but ahead, and remember Revelation 21 says, No one who's evil will come into the holy city. That will be stopped. Uh, and he tells people then to repent. Don't defile it. Verse 9, let them put away their whoredom and the carcasses of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in the midst of them forever. So he wants separation from the world. He was a friend of the world as the enemy of God, Paul said. We can't be friends with the world. We have to separate from the world and put them far from us. We'll be in the promised land. They'll be in the rest of the world. And we can't have them there. Can't be there. Verse 10, You, son of man, show the house to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and let them measure the pattern. So he says, show them what's going to be there, and then tell them their iniquities, that they might be ashamed of them. And if you're ashamed of something, what do you do? You hide it or try to get rid of it. (laughs) And if they be ashamed of all that they have done, show them the form of the house, and the fashion thereof, and the goings out thereof, and the comings in, and so on and all the laws, and write it in their sight, that they may keep the whole form thereof, and all the ordinance thereof, and do them. So, have we been ashamed of what we were as Laodiceans? Are we now going to put all of the world, and all of the thinking of the world, away, and come out and be separate to build the temple of God? Because he's going to come and dwell there, and only holiness can be there. He says at the end of Isaiah 54 again, that their righteousness will be from me, my righteousness. Not our self-righteousness, but he'll give us and grant us his righteousness. Now, there's something to look forward to. Uh, Verse 18, here are the ordinances of the altar in the day when they shall make it to offer burnt offerings. And I think that he probably is going to reinstitute burnt offerings. It seems clear here. Why? You and I don't need them. We have Christ's sacrifice. So we don't need burnt offerings for our sins. But this is, to be here, is an example to the whole world. And I believe that at the beginning of the millennium the animal sacrifices will be for a period of time to begin to teach the people who come out of tribulation who don't know God don't know anything about God and that's how he taught Israel to hear and fear him was through those sacrifices in the old testament and he said in jeremiah 7:22 when you came out i didn't speak to you of sacrifices It was because of transgression that I added them later. So the pattern is that here are these people who don't know God, and you could give them his ordinances, and they'd say, "Eh, what's that? But those sacrifices would be used to teach them. So if this temple, then, is to be a microcosm of that which is to come in the millennium, it makes sense that he would reinstitute them here as an example of what shall be in the millennium. Now, people have gotten after me when I've said there'll be a- animal sacrifices. Uh, and I've made it very clear that they're not for us, they're for an example to the world. And maybe we learn some lessons from it about holiness and what God expects. Yeah, we can learn and be instructed by it. But we don't need it to forgive our sins, because the iniquity of our land is going to be removed in one day. Zechariah 3, last verse. So, they are to cleanse and purge, verse 20, uh, and keep, get things in order. Uh, let's see. Down in verse 44, or chapter 44, I mean, uh, he brings me to the outward sanctuary, and he hears the gate. It shall not. It, this gate shall be shut. It shall not be open, and no man shall enter in by it, because the eternal the God of Israel has entered in by it. Therefore, it shall be shut. So, access to Christ Himself, who will be the glory of the temple, is. Stopped. mentions again in verse 4, "...the glory of the Eternal filled the house of the Lord, and I fell on my face. And he said, Mark well, and behold with your eyes, and hear with your ears, all that I say to you concerning the ordinances of the house, and the laws thereof. And mark well the entering of the house, with every going forth of the sanctuary. And you shall say to the rebellious, even to the house of Israel, people in Israel or in the church, who are rebellious. Thus says the eternal God, O you house of Israel, let it suffice you for all your abominations, in that you have brought into my sanctuary strangers, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, to be in my sanctuary, to pollute it, even my house, when you offer my bread, and so on. And you have not kept, verse 8, the charge of my holy things... But you have set keepers of my charge and my sanctuary for yourselves. Now God tells the leadership in Zechariah 3 and 4 to be diligent in charge of his things. And the temple is the greatest of his things where he will dwell. So that charge given there is about these things and Ezekiel's detailing it for us. But it has to be done right. Verse 9, no stranger uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh shall enter my sanctuary or of any stranger that is among the children of Israel. And then he talks about the Levites. Those that went far from me when Israel went astray. The ministers who went the wrong direction and did the wrong things. They're mentioned in Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, and in the book of Malachi. Those who are in that category, he says, cannot come and do the things of Christ and the holy things of the priesthood. He goes on to say that they can be servants at the gates and to serve in the house and so on, but they can't do the holy things that the priesthood must do. And then he goes on to say, Verse 13, they shall not come near to me to do the office of a priest to me, nor to come near to any of my holy things in the most holy place. They shall bear their shame and their abominations which they have committed, so there's a penalty exacted for where the ministry of Worldwide went. I will make them keepers of the charge of the house and the service, but... Verse 15, the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok that kept the charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray were scattered, were puked. They'll stand before me to offer the fat and the blood, says the eternal God, and enter into my sanctuary and they shall come near to my table. So those who maintain faithfulness to God will be qualified to come. And when they go forth into the utter court, verse 19, even to the utter court to the people, they shall put off their garments wherein they ministered, and lay them in the holy chambers, and put on other garments, and not sanctify the people with their garments. Neither shall they shave their heads, nor suffer their locks to grow long. They shall only have haircuts, or pull their heads, not have long hair, but and not shave it, but just have a a normal haircut. Neither shall any priest drink wine when they enter into the inner court. Now, here's something very interesting that I've considered before and wondered about. Neither shall they take for their wives a widow, nor her that is put away. But they shall take maidens of the seed of the house of Israel, or a widow that had been married to a priest before. And they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and profane and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. So even in marriage, (coughs) uh, there has to be a certain way of doing things that God approves. Now, Christ said there in Matthew 19 that you couldn't put away your divorce except for pornea, which I won't go into that. We've done it before. But some kind of sexual immorality or whatever uh, is the only grounds for divorce. So they will not be able to marry women who are divorced or widows if those widows had not been priests. Now, I had considered over the years uh, some, what about where Paul called the people of the church in Corinth virgins? because 144,000 are to be spiritual virgins before God. And I thought that might apply, since the whole church would then be called spiritual virgins. But I think there is a difference here. Uh, marriage is a physical union. It is not a spiritual union. It should have spiritual overtones, yes, but it is a physical union. And Paul, even though he called the Corinthians spiritual virgins, he did not allow physical transgression in the church. There were only certain conditions in 1 Corinthians 7 where a mate fought you over the truth that you could divorce and not be bound. And that was an exception to what Christ had said in Matthew 19 that Christ accepted and put in Scripture. And the man who was committing incest was not said, well, it's your spiritual virgin, go ahead. No, he said, stop that. Get rid of that. So Paul was dealing with spiritual people, or people in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. But he was also dealing with a physical people, with physical marriages and physical sex and physical things. And those things had to be kept Right. And the spiritual correctness was on top of that as the basis. So I think he's saying here that this is the way that it will be in the latter temple. And therefore, we must follow it. Now, we've been going through the various things in the temple showing the pattern that God has made in the past and comparing it with here at the end, okay? And that's been a fair assessment, I believe. Well, let's do it with this, okay? Go back to 1 Kings 11. I originally intended maybe to go through the dedication of the temple and all that, but we've already transitioned here into the latter temple, so uh, even though that's a very inspiring section, I think I'll go past it for now. But let's go to chapter 11. (coughs) Now, we've read the relationship with Solomon and how he asked God the right things, and he did the right things, and he was obeying and everything else, and everything was good, and God gave him in peace. But notice chapter 11. But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, and so on, of the nations concerning which the Eternal said to the children of Israel... You shall not go into them, neither shall they come into you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And Solomon clave to these in love. And he had a thousand women, and the wives turned away his heart. And then he went after false gods, verse 5. He went after Ashtaroth, and after Milcah, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Eternal, and went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. Verse 9, the Eternal was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned. Now, it was in that day, it was okay to have multiple wives. Although he did tell the kings at one point, don't take many wives. You can have some, but not many. <laughs> he even told David when he took Bathsheba, why did you take another man's wife? If you'd asked me, I'd have given you some more women if that's what you wanted. But David didn't. He took what he lusted after. That was wrong. Can't do that in sin by killing Uriah. Anyway, <laughs> he turned his heart from God, which had appeared to him twice. If God appears to you, you better pay attention and don't then turn from him. Verse 11, Wherefore the Eternal said to Solomon, For as much as this is done of you, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, and which you have said you would do, I will surely rend the kingdom from you and give it your servant. Notwithstanding in your days I'll not do it for David's sake but I'll rend it out of the hand of your son. And then he did uh, and gave it to a different family after that. So, they'd married, or he had married, strange women that God had said, don't marry. And he should have Put them away. Now let's go to the book of Ezra. I've referred to this one several times in this series already. (coughs) With what God did here. But let's go on to the end of this story. In Ezra 8. And I'll pick it up, let's see, about verse... Uh we had this, verse 21, we had this decree of Artaxerxes and so on. Oh, no, wait a minute. Here, I'm at 8. I'm I'm not down there yet. Uh, 8.21 Ezra had proclaimed a fast at the river of Ahava to afflict ourselves before our God to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. So they built the temple, and Ezra said, Now we need to implore God to give us guidance and leadership and direction in where we go from here for all of us. There were 42,000, over 42,000 of them. So he says, We want to know what God wants us to do. For I was ashamed to require of the king a hand of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way, uh, the hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek Him, but His power and His wrath is against all them that forsake Him. So He was afraid that they were not obeying God fully and that God's anger might come. So we fasted and besought God for this, and God was entreated. So, we go on down, verse 31, we departed from Ahava, twelfth day of the first month, to go to Jerusalem. And God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy, or those that were laying wait for us, and came in three days. Now, chapter 9, when these things were done, the princes came to me saying, The people of Israel, and the priests, and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands. Paul did the same thing, separate yourself from the world, friend of the world's, enemy of God. This has been all through history. They've done according to their abominations, and have married the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and so on. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of these lands." Yes, the hand of the princes and rulers has been chief in this trespass. So from the top down, they had all been taken wives that were not part of their group, weren't part of Israel. Ezra then, when I heard this, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonished. They had fasted. They would asked at God's direction. And almost immediately, as soon as they got to Jerusalem, here came one, someone to say, You want to know what God's upset about? He's upset about you being mingled with the world around you. They took this seri- seriously. Then were assembled to me, everyone that trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression... And I sat astonished till evening sacrifice. And at that time he rose up from his heaviness, in verse 5, having rent my garment and my mantle, and I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Eternal my God, and said, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head and our trespasses grown up into the heavens. So, Didn't we read something about the priests back here being ashamed of what they had done in Worldwide? Some of them, and others were faithful. Ezra, same thing. I'm ashamed of what we've done. We allowed the world to come in, and then they went after the world, didn't they? And they disappeared. And only then the faithful who will continue to obey God remain and will come to serve God and Christ in his courts and in his temple. The world will not be allowed in, and those who do evil will not. So he says, since the days of our fathers, we've been in great trespass to this day. And then he says, and now for a little space, verse 8, grace has been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape, and to give us a nail, a place to hang in his holy place, that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. We've been in bondage to sin, and God's going to give us a reviving. For we were bondmen, slaves of the world to Babylon. And then he says it again, to give us a reviving, end of verse 9, to set up the house of our God and to repair the desolations thereof, and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. And now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded your servants, the prophets. Where you go to possess is an unclean land, with the filthiness of the people of the lands and their abominations. That's where we've come today, the abomination of the Mormons and others. Got to be cleaned up. And he says, verse 12, don't give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters to your sons, nor seek their peace or their wealth forever, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children. So then he says, verse 14, Shall we again break your commandments and join in affinity with the people of these abominations? Would you not be angry with us till you had consumed us? Then when he had prayed, excuse me, And cast himself down before the house of God, there assembled to him of of Israel a very great congregation of men and women who wept sore. And then one stood up and said, You've taken the strange wives of the people. Uh, verse Verse 3, Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives, and such as are born of them according to the counsel of my Lord and of those that tremble at the commandment of God. Be of good courage and do it, Into verse 4. Then Ezra got up and he said, verse 7, They made proclamations throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the children of the captivity that had come to build the temple that they should gather themselves to Jerusalem, and within three days everybody was to come there. And then it was announced to them that they must give up their wives and their children that were not of Israel. Now, this was traumatic. And they said it's a time of great rain and it's going to be difficult. So they were given some time to get this done. But they did it. And then he names a whole list of them here who had done this and how they gave up their strange wives and even their children. This would have been very, very difficult. They probably married those women. Because they had a great affinity for them. Might have loved them. Probably did. And wanted to marry them. And then they had. And then they had children. And they were bound very, very close together as families with children. But to obey God, they had to give that up and put them away. Let me ask you a question. Is God serious or not? Does God mean it when He wants us separated from the world and to do His thing instead of Satan's and the world's thing? I think He's pretty serious. He was serious with Solomon, wasn't He? And He was serious with Ezra. And even at the end of Nehemiah 13, after they'd built the wall, they had somewhat of an awakening here as well. Uh... Let's see if my eye will pick up. On the day they read in the book of Moses, in the audience of the people, it was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever. And mentions Balaam. And in verse 3, they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. Remember when they came up out of Egypt, there came a mixed multitude with them. Here, They are reestablishing worship to God. After 70 years of captivity for sin, they were trying to get things absolutely right. They put away their wives and kids, and they put away the entire mixed multitude. And we're to do the same thing. Let's go back to, for a moment here, uh, to Leviticus 21. Leviticus 21. In here, I want verse. Start with verse 10. He that is the high priest among his brethren. There was only one at the time. Aaron was the first. Upon whose head the anointing oil was poured, and that is consecrated to put on the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor rend his clothes. Neither shall he go into any dead body, nor defile himself or his father or for his mother. Neither shall he go out of the sanctuary, nor profane the sanctuary of his God. For the crown of the anointing oil of his God is upon him, I am the Eternal." And he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow, or a divorced woman, or profane, or an harlot. These shall he not take, but he shall take a virgin of his own people to wife. Neither shall he profane his seed among his people. Spread it around uh, with mixed multitude, as was done there by people who were reforming in Ezra, Ezra, in Nehemiah. For I, the eternal, do set him aside or sanctify him. So the high priest was given that instruction from the beginning. Now, let's go to Ezekiel 24 for a little bit. See how I'm doing on time. About out. That's okay. You got nothing else to do today. Last day of the feast. Uh, Ezekiel 24. I want to finish this section. Now, Ezekiel had been preaching to Israel that they about their captivity and their sins. And uh, here in chapter twenty four, uh, the king of Babylon set himself against Jerusalem, and a parable came to Ezekiel about the rebellious house. And God told him to set on a pot and pour water in it and gather pieces of meat together and start boiling the bones. Wherefore, thus says the eternal God, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose scum is therein, and whose scum is not gone out of it. Bring it out piece by piece. Let no lot fall upon it. Or don't choose any to set aside. Bring it out piece by piece. For her blood is in the midst of her. She set it upon the top of a rock. She poured it not upon the ground to cover it with dust. In other words, our sin, our drawing of blood, and the wages of sin is death. We've not tried to hide. This nation does not try to hide its sin anymore. It's just right out there in the open. That it might cause fury to come up to take vengeance. I have set her blood on the top of a rock. Therefore, thus says the eternal God, Woe to the bloody city! I will even make the pile for fire great. Now, he says in other places he's going to burn our nation. And it's already starting to burn. Heap on wood, kindle the fire, consume the flesh, then set it empty upon the coals thereof, that the brass of it may be hot and may burn, and that the filthiness of it may be melted away, that the scum of it may be consumed." God says, I want it clean, a clean pot. Put Israel in there, put the city in there, and boil it, and boil it, and then cook the scum out. I don't want anything left that is wrong. I want it cleansed. She's wearied herself with lies, and her great scum went not forth out of her. Her scum shall be in the fire, and your filthiness is lewdness, because I've purged you. Till I have caused my fury to rest on you. And then he says in verse 14, I've made this judgment, I'll not go back. According to your judge, to your doings, shall they judge you. Then came an interesting instruction to Ezekiel. Verse 15, Son of man, behold, I take away from you the desire of your eyes with a stroke. That was his wife. Yet neither shall you mourn nor weep, neither shall your tears run down. Forbear to cry, make no mourning for the dead. use usually that mourn at least thirty days. Bind the tire of your head upon you, and put on your shoes, on your feet, cover not your lips, and eat not the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at even my wife died, and I did in the morning as I was commanded." Now, this seems strange to people. Why isn't he in mourning? What's going on here? Did he kill his wife? (laughs) You know, I've heard those words. The people said to me, Will you not tell us what these things are to us that you do? You're acting weird, Ezekiel. What are you doing? Then I answered, Thus says the eternal God, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary and the excellency of your strength and the desire of your eyes, and that's what your soul pities. God was using Ezekiel's wife as a type to these people in Jerusalem of what he was going to do to them. Ezekiel suffered a great loss, but it was for God's purpose, and he wasn't even to have a formal mourning. He was to go on about his business. And your sons and your daughters, whom you have left, shall fall by the sword. And you shall do as I have done. You will pine away for your iniquities and mourn one toward another, into verse 23. Then Ezekiel said, This is to you a sign, verse 24, According to all that he has done, shall you do, And when this comes, you shall know that I am God. Verse 26, He that escapes in that day shall come to you to cause you to hear it with your ears. In that day shall your mouth be opened to him which is escaped. He's describing the end time in the latter temple and how the whole church has been consumed in order to purify it and then trouble came, and we had spiritual famine, sword, and death, pestilence, on the church. And now, God is going to set up a leadership, and those who escape the, ter- the terrible things that have happened to the church will come, and you shall be a sign to them. Doesn't he say there in Zechariah 3, signs and wonders that will reveal his servant the branch The right branch, the right bow, I believe that's right and bow. Makes sense. This will be a sign to them, and they shall know that I am the Eternal. They're going to be ashamed, and they're going to repent and come. Now, let's go back to Ezekiel 44. Was a time when God offered me a position in his priesthood. And I didn't fully grasp everything, but I've been accused of living with Marla in adultery because my first wife was still alive, and yet God, through Herbert Armstrong, I do believe. Uh, annulled that because it was done under politics and all kinds of things that should not have been, and Herbert Armstrong himself was even involved in it, and I think I've told you the story. But, uh, be that as it may, well, she was a virgin when I married, her, and so was I, at 22 and she was 24, because we've been trying to do things right. But anyway, uh, I was married to her. And interestingly to me, I thought about this quite a bit last night. Uh, She got that bite from the tick in 1984, the year we were married, and had Lyme's disease uh, for all those years until she died in 2017. And it got worse and worse over the years until finally, which we had read, could happen uh, there in April of 17. It attacked her inner organs, not just her bones and nerves and so on as it had been, but her interior, inner, internal organs. And we had read that when that happens, you go down very, very rapidly because your organs can't take it. Your nerves and your bones and your muscles did for a long time, but not then. So she died within two or three weeks, and I was thankful that we had those two or three weeks. And we talked about it a lot and that maybe God would heal her on Pentecost, which was coming up shortly after this happened, within two or three weeks. And I said, he may heal you on Pentecost, or he may die, but I do believe that if you die, it's because he wants to use you as a sign and a wonder to his people. Now, the pattern is there in Ezekiel 24. This is the end time, and that was an end time prophecy. Ezekiel is an end time prophecy. Didn't we cover that at the beginning here? In those scriptures, the latter days. Now, considering Ezekiel 44, I think I understand something better, having thought about this a lot last night, that even when God offered me a position in the priesthood, I was already married to Marla, And he had accepted that marriage as a marriage. I, I don't feel anything wrong with that. But, when you come to Ezekiel 44, in the latter temple, things do not go on as normal. Changes have to be made. Everything has to be right up to par. And there I was married to a woman who had been married before to a man who acted, converted for a little while, and left the church, and she came under 1 Corinthians 7. There wasn't a problem there. But here, God wants everything purified for the glory of Christ to come in. And I believe that to bring the ministry, and me, to this point of What he's saying here, she had to die. And it happened on Pentecost. And I do believe that it was done for a sign and a wonder to people that we must straighten our lives up and repent or die. There's a witness there just as Ezekiel's wife was struck down one day as an example to people that you'd better repent or you're going to die. I have thought for a long time she might come back as a sign and a wonder. And she might. I don't know that, but I think it is a possibility. Now, if so, death does part all relationships, all marriages, all everything? Your history is gone. You're done. You're dead. If someone is brought back, they got a new life, new new being. In that sense, Lazarus came back. He'd been dead. <laughs> he was a different person. And those who uh, others who were resurrected throughout the Bible. And I've said for many years now, and many times. But these patterns repeat, and God has in all the eras, Elijah, uh, Elisha, uh, the New Testament, in the New Testament, some were raised from the dead, and that has been the pattern. I think that some of, there may be one or more that come back out of this little cemetery up here, here in the end time. Or somebody may die and be resurrected, one or two or three, like it was in the early New Testament. God said he will repeat things. He said here in the temple, consider the pattern thereof. Well, we're considering the pattern of the past for today. And the pattern is there. Now, I've come sometime back to a personal decision that if this, in Ezekiel 44 mean what it says, and on a physical level, I had better be very, very careful that I'm not to marry anyone that is in the categories he says, don't do that. So I've determined in my mind, I shouldn't marry. I don't think God wants me to marry at this time. And I think this is a pretty good reason for it, right here. Just in case if you will, and then I go back, and last night, I was up till about 4.30 this morning, and read about Solomon, and read about Ezra, and Nehemiah, and these things of the past, and the trauma that was involved, the trauma of Ezekiel, and what was involved, and knowing Ezekiel is a type, and Ezekiel is a prophecy for today. And that some of the things that occurred with Ezekiel would have to occur today. That's the pattern. And I believe that for chapter 44 here to be properly fulfilled, Marla had to die. And she may stay that way. I don't know. But if I'm to be a priest in the position that God offered, I have to conform to this in every way possible. And I would fear to marry anybody who did not fully qualify right here this very day. I would fear it. And I'm not going to do it. Now, when Christ gets here and the remnant comes, maybe he'll clarify this in some way. Maybe there is a spiritual application but it doesn't seem so, with, physical, with marriage being a physical union. And my physical union was broken on Pentecost in 2017. And you know what? That was just a month or two before July and August of 2017, when the eclipse went across our country, and the 430 came to pass, and the 70 years came to pass, And in 2019, when the 65 years of Isaiah 6, 7 was fulfilled, and now we're headed downhill like a snowball in hell in this nation. And she died just a month or two, depending on which of those events you're talking about, occurred. Now, is that a sign or not? And does that put Mithya under the gun to do as Ezekiel did? And to do as Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 44. And not just me, but any who would be part of the priesthood of the latter temple. But they had to have been those who were faithful throughout, not those who went astray. They might come back, and they might repent, and they might be servants in the court, but they're not to do the holy things of God. He set aside Zadok and his sons because they were so obedient And he implores, he demands, diligent obedience for the leaders, especially Joshua there in Zechariah 3. He says, you be diligently obedient, I think, for the first time. Now, I never, I didn't question God when Marla died. I thought there was a reason for it. And she was the light of my life. She's the most precious person on earth that I had ever had anything to do with. I loved her with all my heart. And she said, I would die for you. And you know what? I think she did. I think she did. She died that these things might happen in the way that God says they must happen. So that's where we are. And now, having not understood that for over three years fully, I knew God's hand was in it. I knew that there was meaning there. I knew there had to be a purpose. I didn't resent it. I didn't get mad. I knew God was doing what God is doing. And I knew there had to be a purpose, but I couldn't see it. Well, it hasn't been long here since I prayed and said, God, please show me what you're doing. And why? And he gave me a signal, a sign, if you will, of something only I would understand. Something that nobody else would comprehend what God was saying. And then, I think last night, he revealed the full meaning of what this is about here in Ezekiel 40-48, to about the latter temple and about the priesthood, and how demanding and how careful things have to be. And when I look back and see that he deprived those 42,000 of their wives and children, and he deprived Ezekiel of his wife in one night, all I can say is, thank you, God, for showing me your purposes, your plan, and what you're doing. And what things must be like in the latter temple, which is only a year or two or three away from here. And whereas the spiritual temple are already being built. And we have to do things God's way completely and live up to His standard. Every one of us, because we're part of it. And diligent obedience is required of us to reach God's standard. He took it seriously with Solomon and rendered the kingdom. He took it with Ezra and Nehemiah, and they had to get rid of wives that were illegal and the mixed multitude entirely. There can't be anything come unclean, and everything has to be completely pure. The bride, the temple of God, the 144,000, has to be of pure gold, not mixed, no alloys. It has to be pure. And that's what he wants of us. Now, none of us in this life are going to totally achieve that. We will fall short as human beings. But we need to get the vision. He had a vision. People are destroyed for lack of knowledge and vision, Hosea said. We need to get it. We need to grasp it and comprehend it. We need to live up to it as best we possibly can so that his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness can make up the difference. But at the same time, these events are going to show the whole world who God is. And a spotlight will be put on his people to be lights to the world. So he will hold us up before the world and say, this is how people should live, and this is what I will do for them. And the two witnesses can go out every day from Zion. I think they'll go out and come back every day. I don't think they'll just be on a tour of the earth. Because God says the word will go out from Zion and my people will be a light on the hill to show the world. So if they come back every night to Zion, people and their cameras will come there. Because that's where God's people are. And we need to be as absolutely faithful and true to God And love him with all our hearts and all our minds. And obey him in everything as much as we possibly can. So that we can be examples of Christ. Types of Christ. Walking as he walked. Thinking as he thought. That's what he requires of us. So when we read about Solomon and Ezra... And Nehemiah and Ezekiel, some pretty serious stuff came down, didn't it? That just rendered the emotions of all those people. But they put God first. That's all He asks put me first.